Hey, what's up, Watermark friends and family? Hey, Watermark. Good to see you guys. Bucky and Ben coming to you live and direct. We got a really exciting segment. Uh, it's kind of in the new here too vein of episodes where we address faith questions, God questions, personal questions. Uh, but it's really truly a mailbag. This is a mailbag episode because we got all these questions from the summer, Bucky. We did in-service live Q&A. And so we'd preach and then we'd take listener questions. And a lot of you uh, used our online platform, watermarkoc.com slash questions. And we got like 20 plus questions wow. here. So, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, the vision for this maybe part one and part two episodes is to take five to seven minutes on each question. Bucky and I are just going to take turns. Uh, tackling a question. And uh, as always, you guys, this is not about stump the pastor or get everything right. This We did, we did not do any plan or prep for these questions. I just printed them and put them in front of Bucky right now, <laughs> five minutes ago. Nice, so nice. This is just like it was on Sunday, the unscripted. We have no time to prep or plan. We're just going to look into our hearts and depend on the Holy Spirit for some of the conversation points of these questions. And that's exactly the principle behind these, this mailbag episode and what we did on Sundays to model how to have a grace-filled conversation. Uh, so may not be perfect, but we're going to give it our best shot. Yeah, we're fellow travelers. We don't have all the answers. We're not claiming to be the professional here. And um, obviously, there's a lot of great podcasts you can get that from. But we're just uh, wrestling with our faith just like you are and trying to uh, ask God and, and the Word of God for wisdom and understanding and doing the best we can just like you are. And I think that's most of the people you're going to have a God conversation with, they're going to be at the same place. I think that kind of humility and that posture mm. really helps for a greater, deeper connection as we walk together and try to help people and point them to Jesus. Yeah, that's awesome, Bucky. Well said. So that's the value. That's the why. We're going to jump in right now for our first question. And it's a good one, man. Once saved, do we have to repent after each time we sin? Great question. Great question. Uh, um, my understanding of repentance is kind of the act of turning away from a lifestyle, a mindset, a course of life, and turning towards God, turning towards Jesus. And so repentance is what we do at salvation. We turn away from hmm. whatever was at the center of our life, you know, our self, uh, sinful patterns, whatever that was, uh, atheistic worldview, and we turn towards Jesus and begin to move towards him as the center of our life, as the leader and lover of our life. So to me, that's a one-time event that that happens at salvation. And so it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an event, it's a choice, but then it becomes a lifestyle, just like, like everything in Christianity. There's the choice, there's the act, and then there's the fruit of that act, which becomes a lifestyle. So we do live a lifestyle of repentance. We do live, we're in this process of becoming like Jesus. We're in the process of more and more letting go of a, a fleshly old person and allowing a new creation spiritual person to take uh, dominance in our life. So it's an event, but it also is a lifestyle, a posture. Yeah, that's excellent. I just affirm that. Um, uh, me and the kids, my little ones, uh, age nine and under, are going through the Gospels right now, and we're in the Gospel of Luke. And so it's kind of fresh in my mind, what was Jesus' message? What was John the Baptist's message? And we almost skip over it. They had one central, consistent message, especially in the early days of their ministry career, and it was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, and, and so, and by the way, just to unpack that word uh, for the questioner, repent, the literal Greek is to churn, right, Bucky? Yes. To churn. Ch change your thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, change your mindset, change your thinking. Yeah. 
And so I think that you've nailed that, Bucky, to make a distinction between that, that first and one-time churning, which is uh, tied to so much. Like you said, it's tied to the regeneration of your heart. L- literally, Scripture says that you had a hard heart. You say yes to Jesus. You turn, and you, you a new heart is put in you, okay? Don't think biologically. Think spiritually. Think your soul. And, and, and But it's a miracle. Something was hard, and now it's soft. By a miracle act of God that we get a soft heart. And uh, so... That's the one time. I love James 5, 16. Uh, I said this was unscripted, but I didn't say we didn't have the internet at our disposal. So nice. I just did a quick nice. uh, wow. tapping in, which I'm sure you were probably thinking about as well, Bucky. But got this beautiful passage that I would have the, the listener uh, take hope in, take heart in from James 5. And James 5, 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power to prevail. So here is the second part of what you said. It's a one-time, and it's a, and it's a continual lifestyle of confession and repentance. I, I almost picture, I think this verse is a great proof for like small groups, right? Because if you have a regular group of people you're either having dinner with or you're studying scripture with, that's your platform. There's your space to say, hey, I know these people. I love them. They know and love me. I trust them. I'm going to turn to them. I don't just confess in the quiet of my head and my heart. It's just this private relationship with Jesus. No, it's intensely communal. And you speak it out loud and you experience this freedom because you've confessed uh, as you know, regular as you can, as regular as you ought. It's not a religious thing. It's a community thing. Yeah, that's the lifestyle of repentance. So the question is, do we have to repent every time after we sin? Um, maybe you're thinking, well, then do I need to accept Jesus and ask for him to come into my life and have a born-again experience every time after I sin? And the answer to that is no. That happened one time. You repented. You trusted in Christ. You're a new creation. And so what, what is the uh, appropriate response of repentance, a repentant lifestyle to sin? It's to confess. First John 1 John 1.9 would go right along with your verse. Mm. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, because mm. he's already done that in the cross. He's right. been faithful and just, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confession is comes out of a heart of repentance, mm-hmm. to be honest with God, to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with others in community, and that's a part of that process that God uses to cleanse us of our guilt and to change our hearts around people that want to continue to follow him and live a lifestyle that's good and just and righteous. Yeah, I love it. And I, and I think to the heart of the questioner here, um, I'm zoning in on repent each time. I think this there's kind of an inference there for the sin scoreboard God. Right. And I would just want to go right at that. I think we both have said that in various ways, but just to really go at the heart of that. Um, that's a misconception, man. That's religion. Jesus spends a bulk of his time calling out the religious elitists, the hyper-religious people in his day. And somehow, Bucky, we were talking about this the other day, somehow we carry into our Christianity the same religiosity, this mm. intense scorekeeping God who's just ready to smite us if we don't put a tally of our, all our sins and confess each one by name. And that is not the heart of confession and repentance uh, at all. So I would just say, take that, cut that, that ball and chain of pressure and anxiety and take freedom in the fact that just what you said, what, the, a word you said jogged my memory, it's been done. It's finished. Yes. What Jesus does on the cross says it's finished. Right. So he's ready to administer his grace the second you've sinned. Mm-hmm. So, all right, yeah. you, you tee up the next question and start answering it, Bucky. Okay, second question. Uh, how do we forgive and show God's grace to family when we feel we need to have physical and emotional distance from them? And that's another great question. Um, obviously, there are times when 
we feel that our family may be toxic and may be a dangerous place for us and physically, emotionally, or, or spiritually for us to be in direct contact. So we set boundaries and we uh, have distance uh, because that's safe for us and safe for them. So that's appropriate. But then how do we show them grace? I think uh, one of the primary ways you would show them grace is by praying for them, um, keeping your family in prayer, uh, asking God to open their heart, asking God to bless them, asking for God to move in their life is totally an act of grace because you're not separating yourself from them spiritually. You're continuing to call on God. Um, obviously, if there is physical distance and boundaries, potentially, uh, obviously we have cell phones, we have the internet, there would be appropriate uh, times to write letters, to say things. Uh, where the physical distance is there, but there can be a safe dialogue that might happen. Uh, that would be totally appropriate. Uh, so those would be two things. Other things, obviously, gift-giving, sending things to them that would bless them, telling them you're thinking of them. I think, obviously, the honesty about why there's a boundary, uh, talking about the reason for the boundary and the purpose behind the boundary, that it's not meant to be a long-term situation, but a situation mm. where there can be healing, and then the vision of reconciliation and being brought back together. There's another way of to show grace. Yeah, that's good. And I, and I appreciate you talk about the path to restoration or the path to reconciliation uh, path, excuse me. Uh, and, and that's kind of a follow-up question we would have asked the listener, you know, is this a believer? Is this a fellow believer that's in mm-hmm. your family? Is yeah. it not? And I hate to draw a, a double standard, but the truth is if we have two believers, uh, uh, and of course, believers have done immense and tremendous abuse and harm to each other since the beginning of the church. It's, it's not uh, an excuse or a dismissal, but there is this shared biblical ethic for reconciliation. And to your, I like what you say, Bucky, about, hey, is there a time, is this for a season, and then there's a path to restoration, that this person is so, showing change, maturity, growth, authenticity, uh, and that perhaps that makes a pathway for reconciliation because we just have such a robust scriptural heritage of uh, be committed to reconciliation. Um, the verse, I don't know the reference, but that, that Jesus, through dying on the cross, tore down the wall of hostility. Um, we are, we, yeah, we're just, this is the ministry. Paul talked again and again about a quote-unquote ministry or a work of reconciliation. And so to work towards that in any meaningful way we can without reintroducing harm uh, with, with still maintaining healthy boundaries, I think is appropriate. Yeah, and then at some time to it would be wise to get a third person involved that could be a counselor. Maybe it's a professional counselor. Maybe it's somebody that's been equipped in reconciliation that could sit in the middle of the conversation and protect uh, you as the person that needs the distance and potentially help with the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could be another opportunity to show grace. That's awesome. Great and important question, difficult question. Lots of levels of uh, psychology involved there and also what does Scripture say? Next question says, if we are not saved by baptism, but rather what baptism represents, what's the point of being baptized? And so, uh, again, I had to read it again to kind of understand. I think they're talking about the symbolic nature of baptism. We often talk about it being a symbol. Um, If we're not saved by baptism, but just what it represents, what's the point of being baptized? Great question. I love that question, and a lot of people ask that. Um, from my perspective, um, baptism is an outward expression of an internalized faith. We believe in our heart, as the Bible says, but then we confess with our mouth. 
And so we're not just disembodied beings. We're not just spiritual beings. We're beings that were uniquely created with a body, and that's part of our spirituality. We're integrated, a soul with a body. And so that's an important part of playing out our salvation. And so why would you want to be baptized? Because you're aligning your body with your belief system. Hmm. And it's a powerful thing, and that's what we do all of our spiritual life. We learn how to align our body with our belief system. Wow. And so it's an outward expression where you're actually going through a, 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 a picture, right? You're going into the water and out of the water to picture your identification with Jesus. And you're picturing that for yourself. So it's a powerful moment in your spirituality where you're saying to your, yourself, this is a real thing. It's my whole life, in and out with Jesus. I'm in, all in with Jesus. And more important than just that, you're saying it to a community because salvation is about a communal aspect as well. We're baptized into a body, the body of Christ. And so we're coming out to the body of Christ saying, I'm in. I'm a part of the body. I'm a part of the family. We're placed into a family, the family of God. Those are such important aspects of our salvation, and they're not just for some individualized thing where I believed in Jesus. Yes, that's important, but I believe into a community. I'm placed into a community, and that's such a part of my faith. We've so individualized our faith in America, Mm -hmm. we've lost that power. There is so much power in communal baptism because when we do it in the church, not only is the individual blessed by stating her faith in front of people, that makes it more powerful for them, but the body of Christ, the community is blessed because we get to see God work in your life. So why would you do it? Not only to align your body with your faith, but also to to encourage other Christians that God is real and he's working in the lives of people today. Yeah. That's a powerful thing. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And, and I think that idea of it pictures and proclaims the power of saving grace and new life is, is head on the nail for, you know, kind of the mainline evangelical answer. And, and I would add just a little bit to it that I've learned a little bit from our more denominational brothers and sisters. We've had some Lutheran, uh, you know, staff members here at Watermark, and they've they've shared with me a lot of kind of their tradition. And I think a lot of it is inspiring. I would reduce it all the way down. The thing that I would add uh, that there is something beyond symbol. There is something deeper and more profound than just symbol of the water or of the act. And and there's something really tangible that happens there. But the, the key word is mystery. <laughs> That's the only answer I've arrived at as I've looked at it is, well, what's special about the water? And I'm going to draw a parallel between baptism and communion and say, what's special about this cracker or wafer and this juice, this wine that we take? And my answer is, it's a mystery. <laughs> I, I, I don't believe that, uh, like our Catholic and brother, brothers and sisters might do, that it's the literal uh, body and blood of Christ. But I do believe there's something significant and meaningful about the act of communion and the, and the one-time act of baptism. There's something in the water. There's something that God does. There's something that transpires in that moment um, that, is, that is important, um, even necessary, I'm not going to say required or mandated, but necessary in, in the lifespan of a believer. So if there's a believer, you've been born and raised, or, or you're new to faith, and you're wondering, should I even do this? The emphatic answer is yes, yes, yes. Mostly, and what evidence would I cite? Mostly because we have this really overwhelming, almost unanimous 
example of believers in the, the early church getting baptized, like almost all of them, with very few exception. You know, you got the, the criminal on the cross. Jesus says, you're going to be with me in paradise today. Okay, where was his baptism? Right. That's the exception rather than the rule. In the rule, we have households and individuals, by and large, coming to John the Baptist, coming to Jesus, coming to the disciples, coming to Paul, and getting baptized. And so there's something there. If we look at the cues from Scripture, there's something there. And I think Bucky hit all the practicals, though. It's entry into the worldwide church. You're in the community of God now. When you go and you do public baptism, you are, you are in, you're entering into the family of God. Number two, you are inspiring as a witness, as an example, as an encouragement to those who watch and come. Maybe they're friends and family. Maybe they're non-believers. And they come and see, whoa, something could happen even for them in their hearts. And, uh, and that's important. And then I think, just to end, I think there is something f- for the person, for the individual. And Paul just goes at this a lot. You know, you're dead to sin, alive in Christ. So just an important kind of right, if you will, for, for, for any believer. Yeah, and bottom line, it's, it's an obedience to Jesus. I mm-hmm. mean, he commissioned the church for us to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, mm-hmm. and teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. So it's a part of obedience to Christ. Uh, he's called us to baptism as an outward expression of our inner faith, and so we're, we're aligning our lives with his will. That's, That's important. That's a great reference. I'm glad you added that, Bucky. Okay, we're into the next doozy here. We got our first Trump question. Mm. Even though <laughs> that administration is long gone, I mean, this is just from summer, so people are still pondering this. I'll read it. I have been deeply questioning my faith as a Christian for the past year and longer with so many so-called Christians being such strong supporters of Trump. In my knowledge, we might have to break this one up. It's a little bit long. In my knowledge and knowing of him and his ways, to me, he's about as far removed from being a Christian as humanly possible. Okay, I think that he is Trump in this case. I have been deeply offended as a Christian by what I've seen him do to our country. For all of this, I have not wanted anything to do with any church or persons who continue to live with blinders and lies that have been destroying and eating away with the hearts and souls of our country. Whoa, that's a loaded one. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Doesn't really end with a question. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm sorry that uh, for your struggle, because I know many people mm-hmm. struggle when we see leaders, uh, whether they're within the church or outside of the church, whether they're in politics or sports, hmm. that say they're a Christian, and many times their lives don't match up with that, and that affects our faith, uh, and we struggle with that. So that's a common thing, and I think we all experience that to a certain degree. So I can, I can relate to that and, and your struggle. Um, I think that many of us struggle because we get involved in a church and we realize that we thought the church was perfect, uh, there were, there were, the worship was wonderful, and the Christians were, greeted us and everything was great, but then when we get into the church we realize that the Christians in the church are just as flawed as we are, they're just as broken as we are, they make mistakes like we do. And so uh, we have to have a faith that's stronger than the people we compare ourselves to or the, or the people that we look to. And so I would encourage you to reroute yourself in the Gospels and to look at Jesus because your faith is in Christ. Your faith is in his work in your life. Your faith is in his word, just like every Christian's faith is in that. And every Christian struggles with different issues. As a pastor, I've never met a Christian that doesn't have a struggle or an issue with sin, or trying to get better, and so we all struggle. 
And so part of this whole thing is realizing that we're fellow strugglers and our focus is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, as Hebrew says. And so I would encourage you to reroute your hope and your trust in Jesus and what he's doing in your life and what he's doing into to the lives of people that there are many Christians who didn't vote for Trump that I see mm-hmm. that are following Jesus. So th- it's not just the church of Trump, it's the church of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's good, Bucky. Um, what you said in the beginning about what happens, because that really is, I think, the heart of this um, comment. Uh, there is a question there. What happens to my faith? That's what we're going to latch on to. I'm questioning my faith as a result of this poor example of a Christian leader. Mm-hmm. And I think you've done a really good job, especially uh, what you said there in the beginning about what happens to our faith when that happens. Because it happens all the time, Bucky. Right, right. It happens in the most public and national platform of megachurch pastors or megachurch ministries, mega nonprofit ministries that are Christian, uh, all the way up to the presidential office, and then all the way down and at your local church. We, a hundred-person church, you can have a pastor who's been caught up in uh, a moral failing, as we say, maybe sexual sin or lying or deceit or um, struggling with rage on their staff and they have to, the elders have to, you know, let them go all the time. And we have to, have to have a place in our theology for Christian failure, for Christian letdown, for poor example. Um, Otherwise, our faith will be in shambles. It will be in pieces. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a pastor. That's right. That's right, too. If Bucky and Ben's secret sins were exposed before all of us, oh my goodness, what hope do we have? And I've heard someone say that. If the pastor can't figure it out, what hope do we have? Oh, Mm. boy. Now, quickly before I forget, I just want to give a resource, and we will link in the show notes to this, because listener, if you are questioning your faith, you're deconstructing your faith, you're thinking about leaving the church, you must go listen to this episode from the uh, Thinking Biblically podcast, the episode titled Deconversion Something or Other. We're going to link it in the show notes, but you got to go listen to that episode because the author of this new book on deconversion, someone who has decided to leave the church, what have they found out? They found out that, well, they have this dissonance. What they believed about the Bible, what they believed about themselves and Christians turns out not to be founded. (laughs) They find out that it's contrary to what they always thought and believed, and then they're a mess. Whoa, what happened? I feel like a major, there's a major chink in my armor here. Mm -hmm. And and then it starts to crumble. Well, part of the thing they said from the episode is you have to have Christian fellowship. Do not leave your local church or Bible study or small group or even friends who are believers. Mm -hmm. Do not, do not forsake the gathering together, meeting together to talk about those questions. Because once you do, boy, you're gone. And what they also found is once you leave, most people who leave, they don't find much better in the community anywhere else. You can find another religion or the non-believing world. Um, They may feel more loving and more accepting for a moment, but pretty much communities are the same across the board. You're going to find fallen and broken people across the board. So really, I, I, I don't say that to further make you feel jaded, but to actually encourage you and say, this is part of the reality of faith is that it's messy, it's imperfect, it's flawed. And here's what I've said from the pulpit, and I guess I'll leave it at this because we could go on and on. Um, What I've said from the pulpit, and we're trying to be this kind of church, is that each believer must learn to feed themselves. Each believer must learn what Scripture says and then apply that to to themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, because if we are over-dependent on our presidents, our local leaders in the state or city, or even our pastors, uh, or bosses or parents, if we're overly dependent on them. Look at Jesus says, um, gosh, Luke 10, 11, 12. He's just, it's really hardcore discipleship language. He says, if anyone does not prefer me, if anyone does not prefer me 
over mom, dad, brother, sister, even your own children, then he is not fit to be my disciple. He's not fit to be my follower. Why do I bring that up? It's just tied to this idea that people will fail, people will come and go, people are, are incredibly flawed and, and, and sinful, but if the more and more we attach our hearts to Jesus, the better our faith will float, the better uh, kind of even lens we'll have for our Christianity and our faith. Last, last caveat I just want to say, I don't think this person's wrong for holding any Christian, especially a leader at a highest office, to a high moral standard. Nothing wrong with that. We totally agree with you. If Trump has been a self-proclaimed Christian, um, you know, I think Scripture definitely holds pastors to a higher standard. Maybe it holds leaders who are high-level leaders and call themselves Christians to a higher standard of judgment. But here's the last thing, that judgment does belong to the Lord. Again, back to, back to Jesus, um, either Luke 6 or Matthew 5. Um, the standard of judgment you use for others will be used against you. Mm. Beware of the standard of judgment used for others. It will be used against you. And I, I just see Jesus saying, focus on your own heart, focus on your own progress. Um, when we go down that, that, that lane of sizing other people up and judging other people, it does damage to our souls. It does really, it's harmful to our hearts. Yeah, and the, the way through that that I've always seen is forgiveness, um, being, being willing to release the judgment we have on a political figure or even a leader that let us down and um, putting their their life in, in God's God is the judge and God's you know all of us are going to stand before Christ That's and right. give an account of our lives mm-hmm. and God is just and so we have to trust God's justice in that person's life and release that bitterness because it's e- it's eating away at us and it's causing us to distance ourselves from God and others and so that forgiveness process and then re-engaging in the community of faith uh, is is very helpful as well. Yeah, sorry, I will do one more note because I just love how Trump and, and questions about Trump have really seriously tested our faith and tested our theology. Here's the last thing I'm gonna say about the Trump question. Because I sat with people in person, they said the very same thing you're saying, listener or questioner. They said, uh, part of the reason I'm having trouble coming back to church is because I don't understand how uh, Christianity could permit or allow a person like Trump in their tribe, you know, in their base, in their community. And actually what I think that is, is a tremendous opportunity to, to right size the grace of God. <laughs> so let's just say for the sake of argument that Trump is the worst Christian sinner of all time, despicable, grotesque, chief of sinners, which by the way is a, is a reference to scripture. You guys should look it up, but let's just say that's true. And let's just say that, that meanwhile, Jesus hung out with every despicable and grotesque and disgusting type of sinner. And they, even though they were Jews, it would have been the same equivalent, right? That he's a Jew, they're Jews. Jesus is, is finding, you know, restoring these sinful and wicked Jews back to the community, back to the family of God. And here's what Trump will test you in. Tr- the Trump question will test how big is your God, how big is your grace, and how big is heaven? Because if Trump is the lowest common denominator and we believe that God's grace through Jesus on the cross is big enough for the worst of sinners, then we have to make room in our hearts for the worst of sinners in our midst. Trump is an easy target. What about your friend or neighbor who's the worst of sinners? And they're also calling themselves a Christian. Are we saying that God is not big enough and heaven is not big enough because they appear to us to be the worst kind of sinner? It's a great challenge and test of how much grace does God have. Something to ponder. Great answer. Beautiful. All right, get us on the next one, Bucky. All right, uh, the next question is, how do the first and second greatest commandments for us relate to the message of going out 
of the camp. And I'm trying to understand the going out of the camp. That, I think that that's was a from Hebrews the Hebrews reference. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I preached on that. Yeah. Yeah. And the references to Jesus who suffered outside the camp, right? right? Well, I, I think uh, the reality is that when we love God and love people, the way that Jesus loved God. And Which loved are the people. two great commandments, by yeah, the way, for the, someone who doesn't yeah, know. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we actually do that, there's going to be a pushback from the world and, or pushback from the camp many times. The, and, and many times the discouraging thing for Christians, that camp might be religion. Hmm. And so many times uh, one of the hardest places to be persecuted is by fellow Christians. And so many times that lifestyle of Jesus to love God and love others in, in such a way it threatens many times uh, people that are comfortable or people that have certain religious traditions. And so it pushes on them, and sometimes there's a suffering mm-hmm. that happens as mm-hmm. a result of mm-hmm. that. Yes. And we feel outside the camp. We feel like, oh my gosh. Obviously, if we go into the world outside the Christian camp, the world may persecute us for loving like Jesus, but also that can happen within the church. Mm -hmm. And so to identify with Jesus and his greatest commands is also to suffer with Jesus, because if we do what Jesus did, we're going to get what Jesus got. That's right. So we can't say that somehow if we fulfill the first and second commandment, that life is going to be easy and wonderful and everything is going to go great. Actually, we may experience more suffering. That's great. And I'm not going to add anything to it except to add the historical context of that. For those who weren't there that Sunday or don't remember, outside the camp language does come from the book of Hebrews. And the author is saying that's what happened to Jesus. He was taken outside the temple uh, plot of lamb, uh, land. Uh, he went out to Golgotha or the, or the uh, place of the skull, uh, Calvary, right? Um, outside the city walls. Uh, camp language comes from the Old Testament. So there are the, the Israelites and they're in the desert and they're making camp. And they would take the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, um, and the carcasses, they'd take it outside the camp because the camp's supposed to be clean. Because remember, God is residing and, and abiding with the people inside the camp. Inside the camp, holiness, cleanliness. Outside the camp, filth, decay, bones, blood, carcasses. So Old Testament connected to the New Testament of what Jesus does on Calvary. And the author of Hebrews says, we go to him. We go to him outside the camp. We go with Jesus. We meet Jesus outside the camp. And Bucky just nailed it on the head. That's the connection between love God, love others, is that it's sacrificial. It's uncomfortable. It comes at a great cost. We leave our inner safety and comfort of the church or our Christian bubble, and we we venture out, and we go where, where it's dirty and uncomfortable and maybe even unsafe because to... to, to Live is Christ, to die is gain. So that, that is a, that's an intensely Christian doctrine, yeah, something yeah. we forget, something we forget mm-hmm. in, our, in our comfort circles. Yes. Next one. Hello, just wondering why you guys choose to read and preach out of the New Living Translation. So I'll go first, I guess. It's kind of a light question for me. Um, the New Living Translation is the, yeah, that's what NLT is, the New Living Translation. And I, I personally, I just think it's the most uh, contemporary language, the most relatable language um, uh, of, of the translations. There's, what, 150, 200 English language translations. They all use the same manuscripts of the Bible. Uh, they just uh, parse the Greek and Hebrew words differently. 
And uh, personally, I, I, I like to consider, I like to be considerate in the room on Sundays of the newest person to church or scripture. And so I don't want them to get hung up on the these and thous of the so-called, you know, King James Version. I, I want it to be as uh, digestible and relatable as possible. So I think that's most, mo- many times, and I sometimes I'll mix it up. Many times I'll mix it up, but that's why I would default to the NLT. Yeah, and I, I mainly preach out of the NIV. So um, I don't think there's a problem. I don't think that, you know, having one translation in a church, this is our go-to translation, we're going to go with this one uh, versus another one. I think there are several translations, many translations that are within the bounds of orthodoxy, and there's been good work done on that. I think we all need to take whatever translation we have and balance it, challenge it with other translations, look at the original languages, and be challenged to make sure that we've interpreted it properly and that's appropriate so but i think to choose a translation that is understandable readable that the people with the common language in our culture it's relevant to them is important important as we preach the gospel and reach people for christ yeah and i I don't know if the listener is is tuning in now um, or if this will even be relevant to other listeners but unfortunately we as Christians and organized churches have made this a, um, a non-negotiable debate. We've, we've changed this from an intramural, you know, team member to team member, fun, same house, fun debate and dialogue and make it interesting and curious. And instead we've said, this is an obligation for membership, this translation and no others. Uh, the buck stops here. You're out. You're in or you're out based on this translation. And my goodness, what, what an unfortunate, I don't want to be, I don't want to be insensitive to maybe this, this questioner, but this is my view and our, our kind of, I do represent this church in this way. This is the kind of people we're trying to become. But at this local church, we're trying to draw fewer lines that keep people out and represent a high judgmental view or condemnation view. And we're trying to, to draw a circle around the well, the, the source, the, the water, you know, that, that, that we feast from Jesus. So we drink from Jesus. Um, so the great, you know, the classic Mike Erie language on this is, is wells, not fences. We don't want to border people up and out. We want to create wells of living water where people can come and drink and be in process. And to use translations as a barrier to entry is just a sad and honestly pathetic um, example of Christianity gone hypocritical, gone judgmental, gone the way of the religious. It's religion. It's just religion. That's religion. That's what the Pharise- That's very pharisaical. So that's probably way more than anyone wanted. But I do think that comes up, and I would just say beware. Beware of the type of faith community that says in, out, you know, drawing hard lines on everything. There are some things that are non-negotiable, but I think we go too far. That's usually our, our bias as a church. Yeah, yeah, that's a good input. Cool. Um, next one, how can we see God through the pandemic? That's a great question, and, and like, that's a great question of where is God in the midst of struggle and suffering, right? Where, how, how does a good God allow a pandemic— to come to the world, and what's that all about? Um, which is a great question uh, with regards to evil and suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ways that I see God in the midst of the pandemic is it reminds me, again, as a Christian living in Orange County that has so much, that this world is not our home. It shakes the world in such a way, and many times my comfortability with the world, the things of the world that I may be having too much security and strength from, uh, we might even call that idols. It shakes the idols of the world, and it allows people to ask the deeper questions 
Where is God? Who is God? Why is this happening? If there is no God, then the pandemic means nothing. It's a natural event. It's here to produce natural things, and ultimately it will bring survival of the fittest and, and more progression in terms of uh, the way that biology works, right? Evolutionary process. But if you ask the question, why and where is God, you're actually seeking God. Mm -hmm. And I see people doing that, and that gives opportunity for me to have God conversations. And so I've had more God conversations with people as a result of the pandemic than I would have had if there was no pandemic. Mm -hmm. So where is God? He works in the pandemic because people start asking questions about meaning and morality. Eventually those questions will lead you to God. And it gives the church an opportunity to share God because the most important thing that God's concerned about is the salvation of the lost, right? He's, Jesus is not returning because he's patient, as Second uh, Peter tells us. He wants no one to perish but all to come to repentance. So where do I see God? In the opportunities for the church to be on mission in the pandemic and share our faith, our hope, and love with those that are freaked out. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the call to the church, is not to be freaked out in the pandemic, because the Bible says these things are going to happen. Jesus even predicted there was going to be wars and earthquakes and famines and all these things until right. the end. Mm-hmm. And so we should not be surprised that our world is rattled, shaken, and rolled. It should root our faith deeper and give us the opportunity to proclaim to those people that don't know God, hey, I've got an anchor in this storm. His name is Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Mm. So I see God on mission Mm-hmm. going after the lost mm-hmm. and, and during the pandemic. Yeah, I think that's really good, Bucky. And uh, I think you summed up the best of it really right there. Luke 21, you, you started to reference it there. Jesus is, is posed the question, how will we know when we're close to the end from the disciples or some other listener? And Jesus goes in. It's almost a whole chapter devoted to signs and signals. And, and that's one of the key verses is there will be... Um, uh, epidemics and there will be wars and there will be storms and there will be you know all manner of issues but there's so much hope in that chapter take heart he says do not be over overrun by anxiety uh fear not uh look for the ultimate sign which is the son of man jesus coming on the clouds with fire like that's that's the one so we needn't get ahead of ourselves with conspiracy theories or end times postulations that's that's not necessary we live for today jesus totally encourages that, that we live for today. And I just defer to the other couple of verses we talked about today. We, we live for today. We, we go by the, when in doubt, default to the number one and two commandments. Love God and love others. Love God and love others. We're on that mission, as you said, Bucky. Yes. And, um, and Ben and I have seen God in the pandemic of pastors. This is just our, our own little context here. Mm-hmm. But we've seen God in the pandemic in the faithfulness of his people mm-hmm. and the generosity uh, of people that should be actually holding on to their wealth because they're afraid of the economy, afraid of what's going to happen in the pandemic. But those that are still giving generously at levels of pre-pandemic, incredible mm. generosity. Right. As a result of that, we've been able to help people that have lost their jobs or need to make house payments, need groceries, because of the generosity of God's people. So I see God working in the pandemic through generosity and through 
the faithfulness of people that have been willing to go out and serve, even in the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. We've had a team of people that have gone down and built a church in Mexico and raised that church up so people could come and worship. And that all happened through the pandemic. Nobody stopped and said, I'm not going to go out and do the loving acts of Christ, even if there's a pandemic. So I see that in the faithfulness of his people that are still out there serving the poor and the broken and helping hurting people during the pandemic. Yeah, it's really good, Bucky. And, and the last verse that popped into my head um, is about pain and suffering. Once again, this is a Christian formational uh, issue that honestly we've missed. The church has done, not done a great job of leaving room for pain and suffering and difficulty and crisis. But there we have, again, the Apostle Paul saying rejoice. I say again, rejoice when you face um, you know, troubles and trials and obstacles of every kind right? Because God's doing something in our midst. And so um, we have to make room and place for that. Of course, there's all kinds of responses to that pain, trial, and suffering. There's serving our neighbors. Um, there's protecting our neighbors. There's um, uh, lament, uh, suffering with others who are suffering, uh, growing in compassion. Um, uh, you know, I, there's a whole other list of ways that we can impact what's happened in the pandemic and how the church needs to respond or what God's doing. But uh, I think keeping, the last thing I'll say is, I think pandemic has uh, created a crisis of focus. It's created a crisis of focus and attention um, where the things we cast our eyes on and fix our eyes on become the biggest things. They, are, they become enlarged. They become overwhelmingly enlarged so that we're, we're just overtaken by fear and anxiety and worry. And um, I believe that that's one of the purposes of pandemic is, is, is truly a reminder, if not a test, to say we need a greater and greater Christ focus. We need to cast our attention, our eyes on Jesus, on the word of God, uh, on where he's showing up, of how he's coming to us, and then act and respond and live out of that. He will become bigger. If we cast our eyes on Jesus, we get a greater Christ focus, he will become enlarged. He will be the biggest thing. And we'll know how to live and respond and act every day. But we have been sidelined. I think this is the, the, the most amazing season of misinformation, lies, and deceit that we've ever seen. Uh, it has to do with information. We're in an information age because of the speed and the mass content of it, the volume of content of it. And so I think that that's a heads up to the Christian is to beware and to keep your, your focus on Christ. we got Amen. time for one more, Bucky. Amen. Uh, this is from your message the other day, Matthew 6. Okay, this is a question. Is there a linkage between Galatians 2.20, being crucified with Christ, that's Paul to the Galatians, and giving up ourselves and our worries about our gifts and talents in Matthew 6.33, meaning seek the kingdom first and his righteousness, and everything else will be aligned, everything else will be given to you. I, I certainly think there is. I think, you know, in the progression of thought, actually, Matthew comes first, right? This is Jesus. This is before Paul, before the cross. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, and as we seek God's kingdom first, and who's the king? Jesus, as we seek that first, and not seek the things of the world first, money, power, success, we're letting go of our self, we're letting go of our need and our desires that are on the throne of our life, and we're putting the king, Jesus and his kingdom on the throne, that is made more possible now through the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? Because the king went to the cross, he died and he rose again, making a way for God's kingdom now to inhabit our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now Paul looks back at that event and said, when Jesus was on the cross, I was on the cross, mm. right? Because I'm identified with Christ. And so when Christ died, I died. I am mm. crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Selfishness, control, 
I'm not at the center anymore. Jesus is now. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Mm-hmm. So I believe that that Galatians 2.20 is the outworking of Matthew 6.33, that Jesus made it possible for actually us to live this kingdom life because he didn't just talk about it. He, allowed, he put himself on the cross so that kingdom could be born inside of us so we actually could live that out wow. and seek his kingdom first and experience the peace and the power that comes from that resurrection life in Jesus. So I think they're very linked together. It's awesome. Great perception. I can't can't even add to that. You preached out of that weekend. I think that's such a solid answer. So um, guys, thank you so much for being a part of this part one mailbag conversation. We're going to pick it up. Got at least 10 other questions for part two. So please stay tuned. And if you have follow-up questions or or new questions altogether, remember watermarkoc.com slash questions. We'd love to have you be a part of the show. Thanks, Bucky. Thank you.